Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. A report alleging rampant abuse and neglect at the Wilder Youth Detention Center in Fayette County has many advocates calling for systemic change. At Wilder, teens have reported being denied access to medical care and mental health treatment. Some say that they've experienced forced isolation in rooms infested with roaches, spiders, and lizards. And some of those teens even say that this kind of treatment has made them feel suicidal. This hour, we'll dig into the report and hear from one mother who says her son faced this kind of abuse at Wilder. But first, the 112th General Assembly has wrapped up. Here with us to break down the bills that passed and what it means for you is WPLN political reporter Blaze Ganey. Blaze, welcome back to the show. Thanks, thanks. So the session began with a focus on education, but that didn't necessarily carry through. What did you see as the session progressed? Well, yeah, just like you said, it it had education, redistricting in the beginning, but a lot of the middle of the session really moved over to LGBTQ issues. Uh, The transgender athlete bill was one that really, uh, you know, was at the forefront for a good period there. Um, There was also things that would ban books. Um, One uh, representative actually said, he would burn the books uh, if the, if they get banned from the school. Hmm. So I mean, it, it got pretty uh, heated. Not not to be funny there, but it, it was interesting. I get you. I get you. You know, uh, part of the big part of the education agenda was the funding formula that Governor Lee was very excited about. What what happened with that? How did it change school funding? So it changed school funding a lot. Right now, currently under the basic education plan (BEP), it. You're funded by district and by size of the district, but it'll go to a more student-based funding formula, which means every student, um, they actually have the dollar figure, every student will get $6,860 minimum. If Now, if you have uh, special needs or, you know, you're in, I believe, K-3 through gets a little extra money for literacy. Um, so there's weights on that um, $7,000, close to $7,000 number where you could get up to $10,000 at the end of it all, um, just depending on on the needs they see fit. All right, so we mentioned this before, quite a few bills that aimed at the LGBTQ community, like this ban on trans athletes. Go into a little bit more detail. Explain that for us. Yeah, so last year there was a ban on transgender athletes K through 12, So, but there was no teeth in that bill. And this this year they, in teeth, I mean, no, no penalties. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know. And the, so they added teeth this year, allowing um, essentially the, the Tennessee Education um, Department to withhold money from schools that do not assign students to the correct sports that their genders on their uh, birth certificate at birth. Hmm. So that's a, that'll scare some school districts into saying, well, we're going to follow the rules um, if they weren't already doing that. And then also they extended it out to... Uh, colleges, public colleges. Um, so if you attend a public college in Tennessee, then they have on law that males can only participate in male sports. They can't uh, 
you know, even if they get a, go under transition, they cannot then compete in female sports or women's sports. Okay. Um, redistricting happened. How does the map look different now? Well, so the, the, the biggest thing about the map is Nashville, which has for probably anybody listening, if they can remember, the map has always been whole for the uh, congressional Senate maps. And now they won't be anymore. They will be or they are split in three, um, which is combined with mostly East Nashville, uh, downtown area in the in the rest of Nashville are all combined with the more rural areas that surround them, uh, making the one Democratic stronghold uh, really three um, more Republican leaning districts. All right. And, you know, in light of the news about the Supreme Court's draft opinion on Roe versus Wade, the state legislature has a law restricting abortion procedures. Tell me about that. Yeah. So the the law that restricts abortion procedures, I believe there's a, a wait period. You have to see the doctor in person mm-hmm. um, is is one of the rules. And during telehealth, it was sort of a way around that um, or not during telehealth, but during the pandemic when telehealth sort of took a rise. There was a way around that, it seemed, that would allow a doctor to prescribe uh, you uh, an abortion pill. But this year they changed that and you still have to go in person to receive that abortion pill from the doctor specifically. But um, the trigger bill, which if if Roe v. Wade is overturned, that would essentially outlaw um, abortions in the state. And it's called a trigger bill because if somebody challenges that law, the next thing that would trigger is like a two-week ban Mm. or a six-week ban, which is known as the fetal heartbeat bill. So what's up with the campaign finance bills that are to increase checks on lawmakers? Yeah, so so that's the ethics bill. It was actually proposed by both speakers of the Senate and House. Um, They just want to really tighten and make sure that they aren't being tricked into giving money to some shady organization. This sort of already happened or it's it's really alleged right now it's still an FBI investigation going on mm. into a company called Phoenix Solutions uh the company is believed to be ran by Cade Cothran our former house speaker's aide and he was uh, apparently you know getting money from the state state tax dollars uh, that you know citizens pay and and whatnot and then funneling that into state lawmakers hands um in fact, one representative has already agreed that, you know, to wire fraud charges and resigned and uh, seems to be working uh, with the FBI to, I would imagine, assist them to so that she can get a lighter sentence. So it's a little bit of a crackdown on lawmakers. Yes, exactly. And um, some, some weren't happy. It wasn't uh, voted on all out. And there were also organizations that weren't happy that they would now have to file more information um, because I, w- I would imagine there could be many reasons that that d- doesn't automatically mean they're doing something illegal. It just means maybe they don't want to mess up the new paperwork that they've never had to you know, go through. But also, if you're upset about it, it, it may be a reason uh, you don't want people knowing who you're spending money on uh, when it comes close to campaign Mm. There's also been a lot of talk about banning books at school libraries. What's happened with that? So, yeah, there's a a lot of talk this session about banning books. And 
what what it came down to uh, at once they were going to penalize the librarians who allowed the books to be in there instead now a teacher or sorry a parent can go to the school and say hey i want to ban this book if the if the school goes through the review and says hey this book is fine we're going to allow it to be in our schools that parent can then take it to a new state board that will then I've been referring to them as sort of like the education Supreme Court, because if you take a book to them and they ban it, that uh, book is banned statewide instead of just in the county. So in a situation like what we saw with Mouse earlier in the year, um, it could have if it would have went to the state board commission, that would have been applied to the whole state instead of just one county. What who makes up the members of this, uh, in your words, state, uh, book Supreme Court? So I, be, I believe that there are I believe there is a librarian that has to be on, on there, but I, I don't think that's the majority of it. I think uh, the people who appoint it and I may be wrong on this, but I believe are the members of, of you know, both the House and Senate is usually how something like that goes. And also the governor may have some appointees to the board also. OK, so all of these were some pretty hot topics over the session. What passed that sort of went under the radar? So things that passed that went under the radar, uh, a, a resolution. Um, a lot of times resolutions don't really get noticed because they aren't law. It's just a recommendation, a strong recommendation from a, a, all the legislators in the state, essentially. Uh, but one pass that would ask for completion of the southern border wall. So that's still an issue hmm. that Republicans in the state feel they need to let Congress know um, that, hey, we we still want you all to focus on uh, building this wall. Excuse me. And an, another here is gun legislation. Now, there, there was a lot of... Uh, Gun legislation that would have allowed uh, 21, uh, 18 years olds to carry guns, that is gone. But now there's a law that just cleans up and makes sure that there's a four-year background check on uh, people that renew their handguns. And then also the truth and sentencing. I don't know if that one really slipped under the radar. It got a lot of attention. But um, now certain violent crimes like murder, vehicular homicide, uh, carjacking, will those— People who commit those crimes will have to serve, I believe, 80 to 100 percent of their sentence Uh, before there was, you know, as most people know, there's ways for early release. Uh, They won't Mm -hmm. be getting that anymore. So what didn't pass that you are keeping your eye on for next year's session? So some bills that didn't pass, one of the main ones that didn't pass uh, that they did get a lot of attention has to do with Delta 8. It's a cannabis product and um, it. Representative William Lamberth sponsored the bill. When it first came out, it would have essentially banned it um, or limited it to the point where people probably would not have sold it as frequently as they do now. Mm. Uh, it gives a sense of euphoria the the substance does, and so some I don't I don't know if all everybody likes this, but some call it refer to it as like legal weed essentially. Um, and it ended up that they're just going to regulate it. Was the the most recent version of the bill and just make sure that it's not getting into the hands of kids. Uh, Representative Lamberth was saying that some kids sometimes get into it. And right now there's not a lot of regulations on it. So um, a a minor could go into a store and buy some from a gas station. Uh, Now there are, uh, you know, good actors in here that make sure they they know what the product does and they don't sell it to children Mm -hmm. just out of, you know, policing the industry on themselves. Uh, But 
it's not a law, so you know you a place can't get in trouble right now for doing that. But they want to put regulations in place, and I'd imagine that bill will be up next year. We're actually going to pick that up in our discussion tomorrow. We've got a full hour on cannabis culture here in Middle Tennessee, so tune in. All right, Blaze Ganey is the political reporter at WPLN. Thank you very much, my friend, for your coverage. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to look into allegations of abuse and negligence at the Wilder Youth Detention Center and hear directly from a mother whose son was held there. Have you spent time in a juvenile detention center or know someone who has? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Last week, Disability Rights Tennessee and the Youth Law Center released a report alleging widespread negligence and abuse at the Wilder Youth Detention Center just outside of Memphis. The allegations are pretty serious. They include physical and sexual abuse by staff, forced isolation, delays and denial of medical care, prescription of psychotropic drugs without proper oversight. We invited a representative from the Department of Children's Services to appear on the show, but we were told no one was available. According to a spokesman, DCS is currently working on a comprehensive response to the report. My next guest is a mother whose son spent time at Wilder. I'd like to welcome Sherry to This Is Nashville. Now, I should say that we are not using her real name because she fears retribution against her son, who is still in DCS custody. Sherry, thanks for joining us. I know this must be very difficult for you. Thank you for having me, and yes, it is. Can you tell me about your son? Um. Well, he... He's okay. Um, maybe, you know, I know there's going to be, a, uh, you know, something that's going to stick with him for a lifetime, but, you know, he suffered uh, some serious trauma, um, you know, while he was there in Wilder's custody. Can you tell me a little bit more about what happened to your son while he's at Wilder? Well, um, late last year, I got a phone call um around lunchtime from a child. Um, apparently, I guess my son gave him the number, my number to call me. Mm-hmm. And I just heard the uh, child panicking and he was saying, ma'am, um, you know, they just jumped on your son down here. Um, you need to get, you need to come see about your son. Uh, five guards um, beat on your son. And, and I was asking the child, you know, what, what, what happened? And he was, you know, he was just all hysterical. Um, he just said, ma'am, you just need to come check on your son. Um, and then I heard all the children in the background banging on the doors, um, screaming and yelling. And I just hear my son in the background, you know, screaming. So, you know, um, I just, only instinct was just the you know, I need to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so I panicked because normally when something happens, you know, with your child there, they they are supposed to notify the parent and no one had notified me, you know, especially like if this situation that happened was that extreme, you would think that I would have got a call, but I didn't. So my, you know, my mind was just telling me that you just need to get down there. And when I got there, um, they called uh, state troopers there, like, you know, I'm just a criminal. Um, 
And, you know, I got escorted back there to see my son. My son had bruises everywhere all over him. He was, you know, upset. And they didn't want me to have, um, I guess, be in the room alone with him. So I felt as though he was afraid to, um, you know, just talk because he didn't know, you know, if there was going to be any retaliations against him because he know I had to leave, that I couldn't stay. But he said, Mama, I got... um, DRT's number. Can you call this lady for me and tell her what happened to me? And I called them and they've just been a big support ever since. But that day was real traumatizing for me. And I know for my son as well, you know, what he experienced. Mm -hmm. Now, how often have you been able to talk to your son before this incident? Were you able to talk with him and communicate with him regularly before this happened? Yes, you, yes, I don't miss visits. I don't miss for phone call. I'm 100% there invested, you know, for being there for my son. Um, but I immediately, like, after it happened, they had him shipped off. Mm. So I was like, something is not right about these, you know. He called me the next, I think it was probably a week later or probably not even a week later that um, um, I get a phone call that he's at another facility. So they removed him and transferred him to another facility without informing you of this. Right. Right. Do you do you know of any other parent who's went through anything like this? Um, what I do know is I just don't want to put too much out there. But this child that called me, I know that he was a child that had got um something broke on him and he sat and laid in there, you know, before getting medical attention, you know. And um, just, you know, I can just tell how disturbed it is with the children and they're like they depressed, you know, they screaming, you know, cause they, they locked down 23 hours, they can't come out. Um, it was just, it was a, it's a parent's worst nightmare to go in there and see something like that. And then the hurt feeling is knowing that when you leave, you can't take your child with you. Mm. You know, before this, and you would you know, visit and talk to your son, did he ever talk about anything like this happening here? Yeah, he said it was all kind of stuff going on in there. Um, you know, talking about the conditions in there, you know, the food, you know, um, how the guards talk to them, like, you know, they nobodies, you know, calling them disrespectful names, just, you know, lowering their self-esteem, you know, and they, they are already in a predicament, you know, so you're supposed to be uplifting to them. So I think they just you know, put them down real bad. I mean, they just being real mistreated is what I feel, you as, know. As, as far as you know, was your son ever put in self-isolation? Oh, yeah. He was there um, most of the time that he, that he was there. He was in a 23-in-1-hour cell and only came out once. And if they didn't have enough staff, he didn't even get the hour out. So sometimes it'll be two days, you know, three before I go hearing from my son. So it led to the point, you know, I have to call and check, you know, is he all right? Is he OK? And then especially after, you know, that event occurred, I really got to call him because I didn't trust him. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, 
I lay down at night and I know, you know, my son, okay. You know, and then the thing is, is that he got hurt and he got kicked in his face, you know, and stumped in his head, you know, that they didn't take him to even get medical or treatment to see, could it be any eternal bleeding or anything? So therefore, if it was, he could have laid down and died and not woke up. And then here I am, I don't have a son anymore. Yeah. You know? So that that I mean that that is a real traumatic experience for a parent to go through something like that. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about the scathing report of abuse and negligence at the Wilder Youth Detention Center in West Tennessee. My next guest is a co-author of that report. Brian Blaylock is an attorney with the Youth Law Center, and he joins us now. Thank you for being here, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, tell me, what's your reaction hearing Sherry tell her story? Uh, I mean, it's heartbreaking. I imagine it's the same reaction as, as the people who are listening in. Uh, I mean, here's a, a mom uh, who is worried about her, about her baby. Uh, you know, when the children are placed in the custody of the state, uh, what we can reasonably expect as citizens of that state um, is that there will be services provided, rehabilitative uh, services to help these young people uh, in order to get better uh, and, or, and in order to heal. Um, because, you know, youth, youth that are put in the custody of the Department of Children's Services and then sent to Wilder, they come home, they come back to the community. And there's an expectation, I think, by the courts and by the system that the Department of Children's Services is providing services that will help these young people so that when they return back to the community, they're in a better place. Uh, to be good and productive, positive members of that community uh, and to heal and get the education and rehabilitative services they need. And it's just heartbreaking to hear the opposite is actually happening. And the level of abuse that these children are experiencing in this facility is just absolutely unacceptable. Now, we should say that we have not independently verified these allegations, but how does Sherry's story compare to others that were collected for the report? So Disability Rights Tennessee uh, has been monitoring Wilder for almost two years now uh, and has found evidence of uh, physical abuse, uh, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, and emotional abuse. And so uh, sad to say the accounts that Sherry was describing uh, is, does not seem to be an outlier. Uh, these children are subjected to uh, a horrific violent uh, environment there at Wilder. Um, the physical structure of Wilder um, has uh, all kinds of problems with it, including reports of, of feces on walls, the smell of urine, bugs. Uh, it is just not a place that any child uh, should ever be placed or expected to live. Can you give us a little bit more detail on some of the main findings of the report? Yeah, absolutely. The, the report found uh, that children are subjected to physical and emotional abuse. Uh, this includes... Uh, a practice by a staff there, a Department of Children's Services staff, uh, instigating and allowing violence to happen uh, between youth, including uh, a practice uh, where, where children refer to it as uh, children having noodles on their heads. And so mm -hmm. staff offering ramen noodles to incentivize uh, fights between children. Uh, also emotional abuse uh, there. Uh, you heard uh, before Sherry uh, talked about how the children are being talked to in ways where they feel worthless which again is the exact opposite uh, of what uh, you expect a, a facility to be doing there for, for children in order to help them be stronger as they return to the community. Um, also, additionally, the, the Disability Rights Tennessee found that the facility is failing to provide 
any rehabilitative services. It's actually, you know, Tennessee state law that these facilities provide proven evidence-based services to help these young people heal. Uh, and here there at Wilder, there was no instance of any of those services being provided appropriately uh, with staff who were appropriately you know, certified in order to provide those services. Uh, Disability Rights Tennessee also found concerns around failure to provide appropriate education. Uh, that includes special education for children with disabilities. Uh, and the youth there at Wilder disproportionately seem to have a high level of disabilities and uh, experiences of trauma. Disability Rights Tennessee of the youth that they interviewed uh, found about 78% were prescribed uh, medications for mental health disorders. And so there's concerns both that the, those medications can be used for chemical restraint, so like over-medicating children, mm -hmm. but also a concern of that prevalence of youth with disabilities who then are not receiving appropriate mental health care. Now, this practice of noodling and these other abuses you just addressed, it sounds, these are some like horrific things that you hear taking place in adult prisons. You mean to tell me that this is occurring here where children and teenagers are supposed to be serviced and helped? That's a, that's a great point. Uh, you know, it's, I think it's uh, clearly established in Tennessee law and the expectation is that when a child makes a bad decision and breaks the law, they're placed in the custody and they stay in the juvenile system. And all of these are children where the determination by the court was for them to stay in the juvenile system. Then there's an expectation that the juvenile system will then provide rehabilitation and healing for those young people um, to give them that, that second, third chance so that then they can come back to the community and transition to successful, healthy, positive uh, adulthood. Uh, and that is exactly what's not happening. And actually, uh, Disability Rights Tennessee actually found that youth that were sent to Wilder and had experienced this horrific abuse uh, then talked about how they would actually prefer to be in adult prison or in adult jail uh, because they believe there they would be treated better than how they were being treated at Wilder. Mm. Earlier, Sherry shared that her son had been transferred, which she felt that was in direct retaliation for her speaking of. Did your report find that to be a widespread problem? Yeah, I think that is a, a concern that uh, we increasingly have as we watch the Department of Children's Services response. You know, they have reduced the population at Wilder. Uh, in and of itself, that could be a good thing uh, because it lowers the ratio. And also um, uh, what we hope, though, the question is, where are their children going? Uh, you know, based upon the high level of disability need, uh, we think a lot of those children more appropriately would be better served in a less restrictive environment or in the community with appropriate mental health supports. Uh, in a lot of ways, uh, the report has found that Wilder is used as a dumping ground, primarily for youth and children with disabilities uh, and or for uh, black youth. And so uh, doing an appropriate assessment to be sure that whenever possible, those children are moved back to the community. Our concern is that these kids are not going back to the community. And instead the Department of Children's Services seems to be sending them to other facilities in the state of Tennessee and worse, uh, facilities outside of the state of Tennessee where it makes it even more difficult. It makes it difficult for uh, Disability Rights Tennessee to monitor them and be sure that they're safe. It also even makes it more difficult for the Department of Children's Services to monitor and be sure they're getting what they need um, because they're sending them far away. And then lastly, it makes it a lot more difficult for them to maintain contact with family, uh, which we know time and time again 
uh, is the best thing for these children is maintaining that contact with the family and involving family in those services. Because when these children get back to the community, you want that transition to be strong. Uh, and that is also one of the worst things that Wilder does is just almost a complete isolation from these families, making it very difficult. I mean, it was just heartbreaking to listen uh, to Sherry's account of going to visit her, her son, uh, who she believes was just beaten and abused and being, uh, being accompanied back in, in such a way where she felt like a criminal and not being able to talk to her son in a space where he felt comfortable talking to her and being close to her. And that is, I mean, that's, that's not best practice. It's not a way to integrate the family and services the way that uh, we expect the system to be able to do. Mm -hmm. So 300 grievances were filed between 2019 and 2020, which is a lot. But there's only been three hearings that were held for those. If not with hearings, how is DCS handling these grievances? Right, and can you imagine, I mean, so you're a child, you make a bad decision, maybe you have the worst day of your whole life, you end up picking up uh, some sort of a criminal charge and you're adjudicated and the court sends you uh, to Department of Children's Services, oftentimes specifically in the court record, it says sent to Department of Children's Services to receive rehabilitative services or to receive mental health services. And then you end up in Wilder and you are just profoundly isolated from your community, from your family, from anybody that would support you, that help you make good decisions, that help you um, in order as you're, as you're growing up. Then on top of that, you experience abuse. You experience horrific living situations. You experience guards that are inciting other children to beat you. And then when you try to reach out for help, using a process that the, the facility has set up, like the grievance process, you get crickets, you get nothing. And that's what the Disability Rights Tennessee is, a report has found is a grievance process that just does not work. And so when these young people are faced with these horrific situations or with abuse uh, or with a bad staff member who is, who is uh, abusing them, they have no recourse, no way of reaching out and getting help. And uh, I just say, as a, as a national organization, we're just deeply, deeply thankful that Disability Rights Tennessee is there on the ground and has managed to talk to some of these children uh, and to, to, to provide some assistance and help for them. Sherry is still with us. Sherry, you know, I'd like to know, what was your reaction when you read this report? I was shocked. Um, you know, I had already, you know, encountered that my son had got uh, physically hurt, hurt and some more children had been physically abused. But then when the sexual part came out and, you know, that, that was like mind blowing. That was like, you know, if this is, you know, the physical abuse is bad. Don't get me wrong. That's terrible. But when you got sexual abuse, you know, you need the governor, you need probably the president, you need some serious people to step in and say, hey, this is, this gotta be, you know, contained, you know, cause these, these, at the end of the day, regardless, we've all made mistakes, you know, as children, as teenagers, you know, but children, um, teenagers, they don't deserve any treatment like that. So when I read the report, it was like, I mean, it it it, it put an even more worry on my brain. Like, I'm just, I pray every single day that my son make it home to me, that he's safe. It's not a night that go by now that I don't say a prayer for my son. And I just tell God to shield him, protect him, you know, and cover him, you know, and guide him back home to me. Because that was very disturbing to me. That was something, you know, I don't wish for no parent to go through, you know, and have to, you know, just, especially just people just reading this report, you know, it should be mind blowing. 
You know, we're going to talk about solutions in this next part of the show. But, Chair, you know, I know they're not able to join us today. But what do you want to say to DCS? I want to say that, um, you know, it's wrong, you know, because it could be your children in the same position that our children are in, you know, and, you know, you will want, you know, the right treatment for your your child. So what makes our children any different is not right. You know, I think that you guys need to step up to the plate, you know, and own up to your responsibility of taking on these children. If not, then, you know, just hand it over and say that that's not something that, we, you know, we're, we're able to give y'all. Brian Blaylock is going to stick around, but Sherry, I want to thank you for having the courage and joining us to share your family story. Godspeed to you. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will talk with a young man who spent time at the Wilder Detention Center and explore some solutions with an advocate who works directly with youth. Do you have questions or concerns about our juvenile justice system? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Colona, and this is Nashville. We've been hearing about the alleged failures at Wilder, the youth detention center in Fayette County, from one mother whose son says he experienced a lot of it himself. Brian Blaylock, attorney from the Youth Law Center, is still with us. He's a co-author of the report released last week unveiling systemic issues at Wilder. Now, I'd like to get into some possible solutions. Brian, tell me in your view, what is the first step? I think, I mean, I think there's three things that we need Department of Children's Services to do right now. The, the first should be obvious uh, based upon both the report and, and Sherry's account, which you just heard. We need the Department of Children's Services to take real st steps to stop the abuse and mistreatment of the children immediately. Uh, that, that would include bringing in third-party evaluators to assess uh, the, the amount of grievances, the over 300 grievances that have been filed with no follow-up and assessing allegations of, of child abuse and being sure that those staff do not have contact with the children at all. And then the second step is just as important, uh, which is a robust assessment of the children that are there at Wilder um, to see whether or not they should be there. Uh, based upon Disciplinary Rights Tennessee's investigations, there are children who do not meet the risk profile and who have needs, trauma-related needs and mental health-related needs and education-related needs that Wilder and institutionalized settings simply are not set up to be able to appropriately serve those children. And so those youth need to be assessed and have a transition plan and, and get out of Wilder uh, and whenever possible, be placed back in the community where they can receive good services. In the report, there's stories of staff members who have worked at Wilder for 16 plus years, but are unaware of the policies. How can that be changed? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's super important, right? We know that there are, there's a staffing shortage everywhere. And I think there's also a staffing shortage at Wilder. Um, but it's so important when you have children in your care in an institutionalized setting where they're out of sight and in a, in a lot of ways out of mind, except not out of the mind of those children and families and of, of those families and communities that miss them to be sure those staff are appropriately trained. And one of the things that this Blue Race Tennessee found in their investigation was a lack of training uh, for those staff. We also saw because of short staffing, 
uh, staff that were trained to perform one function, say maybe be teachers in the school there, were being moved uh, over to an entirely different function, say being staffing or guarding or security over in the residential um, part of the facility um, without that kind of, without the training that they would need to really be able to do that, without the de-escalation training, without the, uh, um, the knowledge and understanding of the trauma-related needs and the triggers. And so that's a real concern. So you have, you have children who, who shouldn't be there, children with needs that uh, have high complex needs that where the facility cannot uh, help those kids because they're not, they don't have the appropriate medical staff or mental health staff to be able to do that. And then on top of that, you have staff that aren't even trained within their job function in order to be able to, to help these children. I mean, a decade ago, I worked with youth at a juvenile detention center in New Mexico with the New Mexico Jazz Workshop. We were teaching music production and teaching kids essentially how to make beats. We had to go through two months of training before we were able to start talking, teaching these classes. So you're telling me that People who are untrained and unaware are just moved around the facility wherever they're needed? That, that's right. And you, you also just made another really good point, which is, you know, it, children making poor decisions and becoming involved in the juvenile justice system is not unique to Tennessee. But other states, the vast majority of other states, I would say, have figured out ways to provide appropriate services to children who get involved in the juvenile justice system without subjecting them to physical abuse and sexual abuse and sexual harassment and emotional abuse. And part of that successful programs is, is bringing in those uh, third party organizations to provide th that type of services like uh, music, right? Like that, mm -hmm. those type of, of, of services that can really get to young people and really help them heal. And we just do not see that happening uh, at Wilder or, or across the, the juvenile justice system in Tennessee in institutionalized settings at all. I'd like to welcome my next guest who once spent time at Wilder. He's now working with the Youth Justice Action Council, Javaius Hammonds. Thank you for being here. I know you're new to doing interviews and I really, I really appreciate you doing this, man. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm glad to be here. So tell me, how old are you? I'm 16. Can you tell me about your experience at Wilder? So the experience really is just like, it's bad. Like it's a traumatic experience. Like when you go there, you treat it so badly. Like it's like you don't have, you have no support once you went there, you in there alone. So it's like you go into a place where there's kids you don't even know. And then the staff that's there is not there to help you. They're there really to be there against you. It's like, and make you feel some type of way. Then when you get in there, you go through so much struggle with the the shower time they give you, the time you get to talk to your parents and stuff like that. Like you have, like, it's very bad. So it's like, and like, it's dramatic because like, when we in there, we don't, we, we got to eat at a certain time. We can't just go and get what we want when we want. It's like, it's bad. And they abuse you there. Like they, it's just, it's very traumatic. I'm sorry to hear about that, man. Yes, sir. You know, is it supposed to be a place? This is supposed to be a place that really helps the youth. But, you know, you've been there. Yes, sir. And you talked about this lack of support. Now, you mentioned that the, the, the staff members there are treating you poorly and that you don't sir. know anyone there. Do you feel like the staff members are pitting you against other young men who are in that facility? To be honest with you, staff, the staff there are really scared of us children. That's only because we is there for a crime. Most of the staff in there ain't never been through what we've been through. They just see that 
they are able to do that when they're really not. So like when we come in there, it's like when they see one juvenile come in there that's in there for a crime and that's coming in there and showing the bad that they done while they in there, it's like they see that in another juvenile, which they treat them as how they would treat that other one. And so it's like, it comes to us like a, it's like, it starts to come to us like, it, they'll come to where they turn on us too. Like mm-hmm. they'll think we all the same, like they'll compare us to each other. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so. Our producer, Steve Harouche, talked with another member of the Youth Justice Action Council. Crystal Osea says her brother was held in detention, which is why they're on this council now. They say that even though their brother did speak the law, did break the law, it doesn't excuse the way he was treated while he was in detention. Let's listen. My brother used to be very open with me, but when he got out of the detention centers, he was very closed off and he was very angry and he was very resentful. And I feel like a lot of the detention centers and their the officers like really don't have the best interest for the youth that are going in and they really don't care about them and they'll literally like let them rot. Javeus, does that square with what you experienced? Yes, sir. When you got out, what was your mind state? When I got out, it was like, it was like, it would haunt me. Like I go back to thinking about like the time that was being in there. Like it's not been a night where I still don't think about that. Like, and it motivates me because it's like, I would never want to be back in that situation again because of how it treats you. And most of the time, like when, when situations like that happen, if you get back in another situation, you're going to be scared and you're going to be haunted for the rest of your life. So it's like, it's just going to be bad for you. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking with Javeus Hammonds, a young man who spent time at the Wilder and which is the subject of a scathing report that outlines a series of abuses and neglect. My first guest is, my next guest, pardon me, is Marcel Hernandez, program director with Youth Advocate Programs and the founder of Be About Change. Marcel, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me on. Now, you work with young people after they've been released from detention. Tell me about that work. Sure. And, and first and foremost, uh, I do want to validate that these experiences that we're discussing can definitely be emotional and traumatic for all involved. And Ms. Sherry, my heart goes out to you and your son, as well as you, Mr. Hammonds, and others that have had similar experiences. Uh, and I'll also echo some of the statements uh, Mr. Blaylock made about these restorative alternatives to incarceration. When it comes to youth advocate programs, these alternatives come at a fraction of the cost. And of course, I invite listeners to visit our website, yapinc.org for specific examples of this. Now, youth advocate programs, we are in our 47th year. Here in Nashville, we're funded by a grant from the Tennessee Victims of Crime Act to serve up to 40 youth ages 12 to 18 by this summer. We know outcomes are important, so I wanna highlight the John Jay College of Criminal Justice study finds that 86% of the youth completing YAP's program remain arrest-free and in the community six months to a year after completing the program. Again, you can learn more about that at yapinc.org. Ms. Sherry said, we all make mistakes. And because of that, YAP has a no eject, no reject policy. We work with youth and their families mm. through a unique individualized wraparound services that implements a strengths-focused approach and helps families develop and sharpen existing tools to really firm up the foundation. Now, I'll add philosophically and strategically, 
Most of our advocates live in or are from the neighborhoods they serve. We're actively recruiting uh, because the need for advocates is great. Again, you could apply at yapping.org. I also want to applaud our partners. One of these is Be About Change, where I formerly served as executive director, now in its seventh year, that also take a multifaceted approach. The main program there is Project LEAD, which combines body weight training with social and emotional trauma-informed learning. Tell me a little you can bit more about that at beaboutchange.org. Tell me a little bit um, more about the exact services that you all offer. Sure. So with uh, youth advocate programs, uh, we hire a team of advocates. We call it zip code recruiting, as I mentioned, from the neighborhoods where youth and families live. These advocates work intensely week to week with the number one goal of getting that young person off of probation. Uh, and so we uh, are a, uh, an alternative to incarceration. We work with youth that are coming out of detention or uh, trying to keep them from going into detention. Um, in many of these initiatives, we've actually found that uh, the further we go upstream, we've identified things like truancy or education neglect at the elementary school level. And so we try to pinpoint and support things like uh, individual household needs so that we can get children back in school and keep young people in the community. Mr. Blaylock mentioned the word community several times. Both YAP and Be About Change believe that youth are best positioned for success when they live in and are positively connected in the community. Javais, when you hear about alternatives like this, like involving building relationships with the community, does that appeal to you? Yes, sir, it does. What about it? It's like, because like, when I know we got an alternative like that, I know that there's going to be support. Like, and we're going to have somebody that's really trying to help us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, with all the work that you all are doing in your yes, organization, sir. are you able to really develop meaningful relationships with each other? Yes, sir. And it's like we educate each other because, like I said, I've actually been to a facility. So it's like when I come, when I came, they really don't have the knowledge about really being like they have the knowledge because they have like a sibling or something been in there. But them itself, they ain't and never actually seen how it a detention center could affect you. So when I came in, it was like they actually could engage and adapt to my story. So it was like, mm. so. You know, I want to, Marcel, I want to ask you this. What do we need to be aware of as we look at changing our juvenile justice system? Several things. Uh, oftentimes uh, we, we get a little bit into the weeds when we are, are assessing uh, practices that systems uh, or, or organizations are, are taking. And I think it's important to remember that these uh, systems uh, are flawed. And the reason for that is because as humans, we are flawed. And, and so oftentimes, um, it's, uh, I, let me just highlight this. Uh, the, the youth and families uh, are really the ones carrying the heavy weight. And I, I want to applaud and commend all of the efforts that our youth and families are, are doing in the communities. Others that work with youth and families, uh, like our, our educators, uh, other staff, faculty in schools, and, and, and other uh, individuals, such as the individuals at the local juvenile court here in Nashville, that really take that restorative approach uh, that's extremely important because we're, we're dealing with humans and, 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 and human lives and families. And ultimately, 
we know that the more that we are aware of our own thought process and decision-making, uh, we are better positioned uh, to be compassionate and empathetic in our approach working with others. Javais, I'm curious, what are you working on next with the Youth Justice Action Council? Well, first, we want to start on removing juveniles and trying to replace them with better facilities. Like, we want to take, like, just take out all juveniles and we want to build something to help kids and show them other ways like because if we're gonna go somewhere we need to go somewhere where it's like gonna help us so mm -hmm. if we go somewhere where we can see the good behind things and we can actually build upon each other then i feel like that'd be better so we just really trying to build another facility that help and guide other youths to greater things mm -hmm. kind of like working with the groups that marcel was talking about yes sir so i want to know about your plans for the future you're just 16. when's your birthday uh, September 14th. Man, September 22nd. It's nice to meet a fellow Virgo, my friend. Yes, sir. Best things happening. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Best of both worlds. So, you know, you've got a lot of life ahead of you. Tell me sir. about your plans and your hopes for the future. Well, actually, I play sports for like most of my life. But ever since I've been doing this, it's like it's really changing my like what I want to do, like I might just become a speaker and actually motivate others and tell them like my story and mm -hmm. tell them how you can like anything can happen and anything you can done wrong can change to a positive. Like that's what I tell them. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, what sports did you play before you decided on this change? Actually, I had played for uh, I had played football in high school my freshman year, but I always played basketball. Like I've been playing basketball since I was five. Like. Yeah, that's all I've been touching. So it was them two sports. Yeah. Well, I, I really commend you. Uh, I'm happy for you. Thank you for having the courage again to come on and to tell us your story and for all of this good work that you're doing. I really, really deeply appreciate you, Javais. Thank you. Thank you. That was Javais Hammonds. He was joined by Brian Blaylock and Marcel Hernandez. I want to thank you all for being here. Thank you all for being a part of this very, very important discussion. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we're jumping on the weed wagon. We're talking about cannabis culture here in Nashville. By the way, weed wagons are a real thing, y'all. Tune in. You'll find out. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Paige Flager, Zoe Jamel, Crystal Osea, Ty Dre, McKenzie, and Mahal Burr. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be real good to each other.